This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Coming up on today's show, COVID-19 misinformation. It's just one kind of misinformation. Also, a great new project being launched in Lytton to rebuild some of the homes lost to wildfire there. It involves SAIT and the local First Nation. And the synthetic drug era is here. And it's been here for a while. But are we reacting the way that we should? Timothy Caulfield is the Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy at the University of Alberta. And he's done a tremendous amount of work debunking you know, junk science going back to Gwyneth Paltrow. He's uh, had some hit Netflix series and some books. He's he's sort of, uh, he's the guy, and he joins us now. Um, you don't want me to call you doctor anymore, Tim? Is, is this true? <laughs> yeah, I like to say I'm a lowly law <laughs> professor, okay? <laughs> okay, <laughs> professor of law. Fair enough, we'll go with that. Um, listen, we're going to have a discussion here about COVID and misinformation and all the rest and how to handle it and deal with it. Now, first of all, before we even get started here, Tim, I'm going to get texts and I'm going to get people tweeting me about, well, who decides what is misinformation? You've got your set of facts and science, and I've got mine. Who's to say that I'm not? I mean, how do you even get started when we don't have a shared reality? That's the issue that I think trips up so many of us, even just to get started. Yeah, it is really difficult. And in fact, Shay, just asking that question can set up what's called false balance, right? The, the idea that there are these, you know, two sets of beliefs out there. Who's to say which one is right? Well, science has something to say about that, right? right? You know, we, we do have good clinical research on a lot of the core issues that the, you know, the anti-vaxxers are pushing. It's not like there's this lack of clarity that is being argued about within the scientific community about, for example, the value of vaccines, for example, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. We actually have a robust body of evidence that gives us a sense of what the answer is. And what science does for us, Shay, is it nudges us away from uncertainty towards more certainty about what's going on uh, in the universe. It nudges us towards an objective answer. Sometimes we never get there, Shay, but it points us in that direction. What the deniers try to do is create this false balance. that somehow there are these equal points of view out there, and they both deserve as much airtime. And that's simply not true. Okay, you mentioned ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. We're still talking about these, I don't know, 18 months after the fact, at least on both of these, right? And the science is there, um, but the science itself, why is this still persisting then? Because there's also science on the other side. And, uh, you know, I, I hear about, well, what about Japan? I know there's countless stories saying, no, it's not approved for use in Japan. What about India? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. There's always a what about. So how do we counterbalance that? Yeah, I think ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are really good examples. I like them as examples because um, we really don't have any evidence supporting their use. In fact, there has been good clinical trials that have shown that it, that it is not beneficial in this context. Yes, both, you know, ivermectin has been around for a long time and is used for parasites, uh, and it is used uh, in veterinary practice, but there is no evidence to support its use. 
with COVID. Um, despite that, um, we see cherry-picking, so they find one weak study, and sometimes that study, Shay, is fraudulent or has been retracted to support their cause. They just try to create this constant doubt that perhaps it does work, and more importantly, they try to create the impression that that point of view is being suppressed. And right. sort of on the contrary, it hasn't been suppressed at all, right? It's absolutely everywhere, as you've pointed out. This is the other thing, and I'm glad we're getting there. And, of course, this was the focus of your piece that came out. Um, you're just canceling it. You can, it's, the, the word narrative gets overused, I think, in, in 2022 and all through 2021. There is this perception, this concept that people like me, people like you, people like Dr. Fauci, people with platforms and microphones have some sort of narrative, some sort of directive, and anything that goes contrary to that is immediately suppressed and shut down. Um, it's not, but that, that's part, I think, of why this is so pervasive and persistent is the fact that it's been sold that way. You know what I mean? And that's part of the hook to it all. Uh, you're 100% correct. There's actually evidence to back up your, your speculation. When you frame this as about being, not necessarily about the bad science, right? Let's, you know, put that aside, but frame it as, as being about your rights and... Yeah. And um, it's about uh, your cancel culture, and it's about an intuitively appealing ideological position. It becomes about that as opposed to the questionable science. And we know that that's a very effective strategy for pushing misinformation. So Joe Rogan and Aaron Rodgers will say (laughs) that their perspective is being suppressed or their, or, or their position is trying to be canceled. First of all, no, it's not. You know, there's this great irony that you're on Joe Rogan complaining about being yeah. canceled, 100 million downloads or whatever it is. <laughs> you know, you're on Fox News being canceled. Uh, it, it, you're not being canceled. And in addition to that, I think it's really, really important to highlight these positions have been considered They've been researched, and they've been found to be wrong. They haven't been canceled at all. In fact, Shay, you could argue they've been given too much attention. You know, too many of our, our resources have been put to these scientifically if, iffy questions in order to create a clear answer, and the answer is these drugs are not effective. Well, part of the question, of course, is, well, this is the way science works, and anybody who isn't willing to listen to the... I mean, I get the name Galileo thrown at me at least once a day. Everybody thought he was crazy, and then it turns out he was right. I mean, everybody says that's the way science works. Is science working the way it's supposed to work? Are we questioning the things we're supposed to question and putting them to the test? Yeah, yes, we are. Yes, we are. You know, there, people are watching science play out right now. Um, and science is messy. You know, there are often retractions or often studies that point in different directions. Science is hard, right? It takes yeah. a long time. But you're right. I often hear the Galileo. It's actually a form of misinformation. It's called the Galileo effect, right? So anytime that you want to sort of support a fringe view, you bring up Galileo or yeah. you bring up plate tank tectonics or you bring up the idea that, well, we used to think ulcers were caused by stress, now we're, we know they're caused by bacteria. First, number one, those are extreme examples. Number two, they were all about science. They were still evidence being portrayed, and there wasn't evidence on the other side saying they were wrong, right? We're talking about, you know, an extraordinary evolution of science. And they're extremely rare examples. Almost always, it's the body of evidence that, that you know, wins the day. What about messaging? Now, I'm not saying that... Uh, uh, i got two more for you here. And it starts with messaging around the experts and the people who are sort of... We've charged with coming out and selling, uh, as unfortunate uh, as it is. That's what they're doing. Um, 
selling the vaccines and public health restrictions and all these sorts of things, public health policy basically trying to convince people that that's what we need to be doing. They have done a horrible job around messaging on this. Now, I understand there's a lot of moving parts and things change day to day, but don't you think there's some onus on these quote-unquote experts to come out and make sure that they understand they're in the communication business here too? They, they, this is a lesson that I hope we learn from from the pandemic. You know, you're right. It has been not been ideal. Early days, we were probably, you know, too dogmatic, right? We were too definitive about yeah. science when we knew the science was going to evolve because we wanted the public on side. I think we have to be honest and transparent about scientific uncertainty. We've got to bring them along for the scientific ride. We absolutely have to be better at that. In addition to that, something else you point out is we're in the communication game and we've got to create messaging that is scientifically accurate that uh, people want to engage with and is shareable on social media. Um, we have to make messaging that matters and, and that means something to people. Last one. Um, does this ever go away? Um, you know, Tom Nichols wrote a book called The Death of Expertise many years ago, and he thought a pandemic would snap us back to, whoa, we better listen to the people that actually know what the hell they're talking about. The opposite happened. Um, what brings us back to a trust in science, expertise, and the people who actually have the experience, education, and knowledge to, to help us with things like this? I, I don't think it's going to go away. We live in an incredibly chaotic information environment. This is something that we're going to be battling for, I think, for generations to come. Um, but the good news is we have to remember that most of the science communication has actually been a win. You know, we went from 45% hesitancy to less than 20% in most jurisdictions, right? We, we went from zero mask wearing to over 90% mask wearing. So we also have to, you know, take those wins, shake and recognize yeah. that the good science communication can make a difference, and it has. But, but we absolutely need to get better. Uh, those spreading misinformation are nimble, and we've got to use evidence-based strategies to stop them. And the other thing is, you know, we, we've got 90% vaccinated, right? I mean, we, we, in terms of the noise, it seems to be 50-50, maybe even more so uh, on the anti-vax side. But in reality, if you take a look at what's going on, that's a very, very small portion of the population that gets a whole lot of attention. You're right. If you look at the surveys, most people by far, by far support vaccination. Most people support masks. Uh, most people even support pretty extreme public health measures like mandates and passports. Um, we have to remember that, right? We've got to yeah. remember that and uh, make sure that we don't give too much airtime to those hardcore anti-vaxxers. Gotcha. Excellent. Um well, Dr. Timothy Caulfield, <laughs> law professor, thanks for your time. appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Um, yeah, uh, Tim Caulfield is a professor at the University of Alberta in health law and policy. You remember last June, the wildfire situation in British Columbia and what happened in Lytton, B.C., where essentially the entire community burned to the ground on June 30th, right? It was after the heat wave and all the rest, and that was it. Um, it affected, uh, well, everybody who lived in the community, and including a number of people who lived on the Kanakabar First Nation in the area. A number of them had homes in Lytton that they lost as well. So as part of the project to rebuild and to sort of restart things in that part of British Columbia, there's a project underway involving SAIT, um, helping the Kanaka Band 
get to work on what the Arcanica Bar Band get to work on rebuilding with an eye to the future and doing things differently. So joining us to tell us about that is Melanie Ross, who is the Research and Business Administration Manager at SAIT's Green Building Technologies Access Center. Melanie, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This is a really interesting project, and I think it's, like I said earlier, I think it's the kind of thing that we're going to see more and more of um, going forward, as we know that these kind of wild events seem to be happening more often. So just tell us about this partnership you have with the Kanaka Bar Indian Band and, and how it came about. Absolutely. Um, I'd, I'd love to tell everybody and their dog who wants to listen, to be quite honest. It's such a great uh great initiative and it's really helping people who have been not just hit by the wildfires but as of late were impacted by the floods yep. and the deep freeze and unprecedented amounts of snow it's been hit after hit for the communities up there and um, we're really thrilled to to be able to come in and and be of service and help so the the concept behind the project is is to take a look at what went wrong um, you know, why, why did things burn down so quickly, so fast? Why are the climate events impacting them so much? Recognizing that there's going to be lots more issues. We know there'll be more wildfires next year. Um, that's, you know, almost a given. And so what do we do about buildings? Because it's buildings that burn down. People were displaced. Um, businesses had to shut down. Uh, there's so much damage. So how can we address that from a building perspective? How can we make those buildings stand up to those kinds of climate events um, that are happening more and more often? So what is the project? You're actually going to build some of these homes in the area, right? We are. We are. So we're going to do actually a fairly extensive um research into building materials. Uh, we're partnered with Foresight Canada. We're going to launch um, uh, an innovation challenge, which is going to invite people with um, solutions to uh, materials and, and, and um, you know, anything related to the building envelope, windows, doors, wall panels, roofs, and mechanical and electrical systems to come forward and present their solutions that can be that it can be very resilient, affordable, um, and withstand some of the really um, uh, high performance criteria that these climate events are forcing us to think about, which is not just withstand burning for 10 minutes, but withstand burning and heat transfer and melting and all of those components of fire that we don't think about because this particular fire burns so hot and mm-hmm. so fast um, that, uh, you know, we're taking this to a whole new level. I know you're partnering up with a bunch of different, you know, groups and agencies and companies. To me, it seems like this is the kind of a thing that would probably take, I don't know, maybe even a year or two's worth of pre-planning and advance work before you even got started. Are you pl- But you're, you're, you want to be in there this spring, right? We absolutely want to be in there this spring. It's really imperative uh, that we get these houses built. So we're planning to break ground at the beginning of April, and uh, we'll be building anywhere from four to eight homes, depending okay. on how the research goes and the designs and everything that that we uh, that we develop and funding, of course. Uh, and then the idea is that we'll be finished by the end of September. Then we'll take some time to monitor the homes for another year. Um, just to keep track of what's going on, the performance, how the homes stand up to the climate events that we know will be coming in the following year. But uh, it, it, we're we're so cognizant of the fact that 
so many people have been displaced. Mm -hmm. So many people are without a home right now. They're living in trailers. They're living in other provinces. They're they're completely displaced and and cannot afford necessarily to come back and build yet again, Um, especially build exactly the same, knowing that there's a risk that the exact same thing will happen again as these events keep, you know, snowballing, especially in BC, um, it seems these days. Uh, So we want to make sure that we do it right. We uh, staffed up with extra team members. We made sure to connect with uh, folks who have experience in the industry um, through our Green Building Technologies Research Centre. We actually spend a lot of time with a lot of innovative um, solution providers that will that we already know of that would fit this project and we've um, we're working with other academic institutions to draw on their lists of people that they work with we actually have a really strong network in western canada on this this idea of green building and climate resilient materials and buildings uh, so we're we're leveraging everything we've got to to throw at this project and get it done quickly so like you say, quickly, and it will provide housing uh, options for people there quickly, which is fabulous. But it sounds to me like there's more, it, there's more to it than that. This is, would it be fair to call this almost a research project? These homes will ultimately be used as tools for you to, um, you know, further the work in this area of, of climate resilient homes? Absolutely. It is definitely a research project. Uh, the intent of the project is to share the information widely. Um, we won't share specific intellectual property of the solution providers without their permission, of course, but um, we want to share the process. We want to share what we did. We want to share the results of the performance of the, uh, of the homes and how happy the occupants are. Once the, once the um, homeowners move in, uh, we want to follow them too and understand uh, how it's worked for them and how it might have also helped them feel maybe a little more secure, uh, knowing that their home can stand up to a more aggressive climate uh, events than, uh, than in the past. And this is going to be, I think, a growing initiative going forward. And everything you learn, you're, you're saying, hey, anybody that wants to access this kind of information, we want to give it away, right? Absolutely. That's our mandate. We want to transform industry. And it is getting more and more um, important to be able to share this across Canada. These events are happening everywhere. Um, obviously, what's happening in BC Interior is close to home for, for us here in Alberta. Um, but we uh, we recognize that there's a lot of these kinds of events happening across Canada. There are a lot of communities that need help. And so if we can share anything that we've learned, um, even, even the challenges, even the fails, the fails are a learning process. And if we can say, hey, we tried this and this is what happened yeah. and it didn't work, someone else doesn't have to replicate it. They can move on from that and they can say, okay, we're going to learn from those mistakes as well as the successes and we're going to keep going. Love it. Love it. Sounds like a great idea. Melanie, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate you joining us. I, I really appreciate being on to be able to tell the story. So thank you. And I, I hope you'll continue to follow the project as we uh, as we go forward. Excellent. Thank you, Melanie. We will check in again. Appreciate it. Okay. That is Melanie Ross, who is the Research and Business Administration Manager at Sates Green Building Technologies Access Centre. We've talked a lot here on the show about the opioid crisis, and a lot of discussion has been around the toxic and deadly drug supply that has flooded North America. Fentanyl, of course, completely changed opioid use into deadly. It's not the only synthetic drug out there. 
There are others. And they've changed everything about this over the past several years. So to get some insight on where we stand with that and what we need to do to get a better handle on it, we're going to chat now with Sam Quinones, who is a journalist and author. His latest book is The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Sam, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so when we take a look at this situation, I mean, we're talking about synthetic drugs primarily and how they've changed things. They're not really, they're not brand new. I mean, they've actually been around for a no. number of years, right? Oh, sure. Um, in fact, a lot of synthetic drugs have been around for, for many years. We don't, however, we haven't, however, seen the supplies of the of the kind that we're seeing with two in particular. One is fentanyl, which is fairly new on the scene. It's a synthetic opioid. By synthetic, I mean, of course, uh, drugs that are made without any plants right. involved, just uh, chemical reactions and that kind of thing. Uh, and then the other drug is, is one that has been around for quite a long time, but is, has been, been produced in, in much larger supplies in the last several years, and that's methamphetamine. And so these one is uh, something else, of course, an opioid, a, a, a depressant, uh, meth is a stimulant, but both are being produced out of Mexico in quantities that are just, um, you know, just just staggering, really. So the fact that we've switched to uh, the prevalence of synthetic, um, how does that change it? If if you're one of these people that's producing it and transporting it and distributing it and things like that, how has it changed what they do? First of all, uh, well, first of all, they are the, the the supply itself is 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 a massive change, mainly because. Because it's no longer made by, they're no longer really a plant-based drugs. Uh, they they make them with chemicals and 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 they make them year-round, no seasons. You know that's one of the benefits of yeah. making synthetic drugs, and you can make them according to the amount of chemicals that you're able to procure, and they are able to procure all, virtually unlimited um, uh, supplies of chemicals from several ports on the Pacific coast of Mexico Two in particular, about two day drive South of Arizona, you start getting to these ports and through these ports, they're able to procure the, the enormous quantities. And what that means is, um, well, it means all kinds of things. It means, first of all, the price is lower than ever. Um, they have covered in the, certainly in the United States, uh, these drugs have essentially covered effectively covered the, the entire, uh, country with the in the case of methamphetamine, which has a long history in the country in various parts of the country, it's now in many areas that never had enough before. It's really pretty much all over uh, uh, the country, um, and and on top of that, the price has dropped by eighty percent. So not only has it kind of covered the entire country, it's cheaper than ever. And with um, prevalence and, and and very low price comes widespread. Um, use and in, in, in areas particular in, in areas all over the country, yeah. but in areas it's notable in areas where there really was no meth. Like for example, New, New England, places like that, we really don't see meth uh, until a couple of years ago. So um, it's it's creating new uh, new kingpins in a sense. So anybody can be selling quantities of these drugs that that to a narcotics agent would have meant five, ten years ago that they were real kingpins. Now it's like pretty much commonplace for any kind of, you know, just general schmo to be selling this kind of stuff in, 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 in pounds or kilos instead of, you know, ounces or grams. Yeah, I mean, we see that, right? We see busts um, with, you know, of just yes. homes and things with, like, massive, massive amounts of these drugs. Right, exactly. The other thing that fentanyl in particular, of course, has done, 
uh, has changed uh, the overdose uh, situation, and that means that, that overdosing is far more common, far more deadly when it happens. Um, and, um, and it's also being added, because it's so cheap and it's so potent, um, it's being added now to other drugs. One primary drug is cocaine. And um, you get the question an awful lot, well, why would people add a drug that is so potent might kill their customer? To a drug that, to like cocaine, you know, mm. uh, which is the opposite. A drug, a, a cocaine's a stimulant, a fentanyl's a depressant. Well, it's because frequently what what ends up happening as you add that to your drug supply, as you a dealer add that to your drug supply, eventually you get an opioid addict, and an opioid addict has to buy that drug every day. Really, in the case of fentanyl, uh, a couple, three, four times a day, um, perhaps. Whereas with cocaine, it might be occasional. Uh, purchase maybe on weekends, maybe you take a break from it for a while, that kind of thing. So it's almost like a business expansion or customer expansion move to do that. Of course, what you end up doing too is exposing a lot of people who have no no tolerance to to fentanyl to extraordinarily potent this extraordinarily potent drug, and that's why you're seeing record overdose. Uh, one of the many reasons why you're seeing uh, record overdose uh, rates in the United States recently. What about um, what's gone on over the past couple of years with COVID-19? I mean, we if there's one thing you know about um, drug dealers and kingpins and the rest, they're, they're tremendous business people, and they will find a way to get their product to market and to get it sold. Um, they always do. What's the pandemic meant for them? Have they had to change the way they operate? Well, in some cases, yes. It's, uh, uh, I would say that the pandemics, one of the great tragedies of the pandemic is that at the very, it happened at the very moment when the trafficking world out of Mexico achieved this dubious achievement, unprecedented achievement, which was essentially to cover the country in, in, uh, in these, two, in these two, two drugs. So that means that, means that people who are using drugs or people who are in recovery were isolated. Now, anybody in, in addiction recovery tells you the first thing is do not isolate. Be around other yeah. people. Be working with other people. And, but people found themselves alone at the very moment when the drugs on the street were the most dangerous, the cheapest, most prevalent. Uh, we've ever seen. At the same time, though, uh, in Mexico, they were switching um, in the way they packaged a fentanyl, essentially. And what they began to do in 2017 and, and, and expanding almost geometrically ever since is to create um, phony counterfeit um, pills that look very much like branded pills like Xanax, Percocet, Lortab, Norco, uh, opioid pills, um, uh, so Adderall at times in within these pills is really nothing but, 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 but fentanyl. Yeah. And so at the very time, so we they solve the, they're producing these pills and they're just colossal by the millions. And so where do you sell your p- drugs in a time of COVID when everyone's indoors right, yeah. and no one's outside, you do it uh, on social media, Snapchat, Instagram, and so that becomes has become the new street corner during COVID. Really? So they just they're using social media. I mean, what are they? Yeah. It just sort of re- almost advertising, I guess, right? Exactly. They're putting up menus of pills. Wow! And these are advertised anonymously on Snapchat and these places. Um, menus of pills, very colorful. A lot of times, who are you talking to? You're primarily talking to them. Uh, kids, uh, kids from you know the, who who have spent most of their last year and a half, two years 
uh, on their phones. That's their connection to the world. And, 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 and frequently, this is the very lowest, I would say, it's kind of like the street corner version of drug dealing. It's not, you're not selling kilos worth of these pills. Yeah. You're selling five at a time, 20 at a time, maybe, maybe three at a time. But in fre- frequently what we find is that these dealers are offering to uh, home deliver. Uh, these guys, these dealers, usually in most regions, it's the it's it's kids who are not much older than the kids are selling to. Yeah, you know, it's it's just um, it has become the new the social media app, particularly the couple I've mentioned and a few others, have become the new street corner. Essentially, you know, it's where you go to get your dope. And essentially, and the problem is that many kids, I think, have not understood that what they're buying is not an anti, and maybe you look like an Xanax, but it's not an anti-anxiety. Sure. Pill. It's not a, a painkiller. It is, it is a fentanyl and it is uh, extraordinarily deadly. And, um, and it comes in quantities that you're really never quite sure of, you know, it's a, who knows how much actual fentanyl is in this thing, but whatever it is, it's likely that the kid buying it doesn't have much tolerance for it. Yeah, and doesn't have a clue what they're getting. So, so as a guy who's no, been not at all. has been writing about these issues for so long and sort of documenting this change and seeing the way that it adapts and um, you know, just spreads across the continent the way that it does. What is the solution here? I mean, we've tried we had our war on drugs and we know that was an abysmal failure and didn't take us anywhere. So, what what how I mean, do you cut this off at the source? What do we do? Yeah. These are great questions and probably don't have time to get fully into this is a complicated and these are complicated answers. I would say, however, that first of all, the war on drugs, um, to the extent it failed, it failed because not because we used law enforcement, but because we only used law enforcement. There was no we were really saying, cops, you fix it. And really, this is a societal thing that this involves. Uh, uh, churches, houses of worship. It involves chamber of commerce, universities. It involves hospitals. It involves a lot of, and we have done a lot, at least in the United States, I would say. I think the key root cause of all this is that we have done so much, in, at least in the United States, to destroy community, really shred the bonds that kind of kept us unified and together um, and working with each other, even though it was messy, even though we maybe didn't like each other. It was, it was certainly a more unified and connected country back then, even though today we have this technology that supposedly connects us uh, in unprecedented ways, which is true. But the other hand, it's, it's really kind of a false connection. It's not that human face-to-face connection, which we evolved as a species to really prize above all other, all other things. I would say that as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a hemisphere, as, mm-hmm. a, as a North American group of countries, if we could put together a free trade agreement that involves Mexico, the United States, and Canada, then we ought to be able to put together an effective uh, um, um, a tra- treaty that, that governs, um, that, that looks into addresses, not governs, but addresses yeah. um, these kinds of, of, of drugs. And that would also include, by the way, um, uh, the guns that are bought so easily in the United States and then smuggled south. I mean, a lot of the impunity that traffickers in Mexico enjoy is because of the corruption in Mexico and the very um, shredded, I would say, criminal justice system that they have in Mexico. But a lot of that, too, is is ensured by the fact that they have the a, a vir- a virtually un, un, unstop- well, unstopped, so far unstopped, uh, a source of weapons uh, coming out of, out of the United States. In small quantities, it's not like big truckloads right. of weapons but it's a constant kind of drizzle 
of weapons south. And I believe that that is a major reason why they are able uh, to produce the quantities unmolested. The, the quantities of drugs that they're, they're, they're clearly able to produce today. Yeah, and, you know, and I think, Sam, the thing is, you know, time is of the essence here. I mean, uh, hundreds, thousands of people dying every single day in North America because of this, and it's not going to get better in, unless we do something to make it get better. So we need to move fast. Uh, I, I would say so. I would say that this, is, this ought to be, if, if we're not COVID in the, in the picture, this would be clearly the, the number one domestic issue. It is just... Yeah. It is ravaging communities all across the country, um, and, it, and it's uh, all across the continent, I would say. And it's a disaster for Mexico, even though the drug use is less, only slightly less, I would say, but it's less in Mexico than in the other two countries. It is, it is a disaster for, me- for Mexico uh, 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 as well. I think we have not really got our minds around the idea of what it actually means, what the global economy actually means. It means a, a far more, a far deeper kind of collaboration internationally than we've actually been able to get our minds around. And I think particularly with three countries as different and as disparate as Mexico and the United States and Canada, we, we need to figure out ways of, of moving forward on this. I would say the traffickers frankly, have allowed us a real, like a, a, a real opening because they now rely, they rely on these chemicals. Yeah. And these chemicals are coming in only, they don't come, you know, it's not like they're, ev- they're coming through everywhere. They're coming through a few very narrow ports that are easily uh, 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 addressed. They sure. don't come over land, they come over ships. And so I would say that that is allowing us all, but particularly Mexico, an opportunity to get really serious about uh, curtailing that. It, will it go? Will it go somewhere else in the world? Very likely it yeah, will. Sure, but that's just what you do. You you work on what you have to work on now, and and you move to the next problem once it once it arises. But I do believe that with with only a few ports in Mexico, there's maybe six or eight ports that are really seeing this this um, enormous uh, supply of, of chemicals. Uh, it, it offers a real great opportunity to really shut down supply. And when, and, when, and when you do that, you offer an opportunity for people who are in recovery. You give them a breathing a distance, a breathing space between them and the dope. So there's greater opportunity for success in treatment once you're able to distance yourself from um, from these drugs. Yeah, from the substance itself. Sam, great discussion. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I really appreciate you joining us today. On the contrary, anytime. Thank you for the time, uh, for, for the opportunity to speak with you. You bet. Thank you so much. That is Sam Quinones, who is a journalist and author. His latest book is The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.